Most of you know, I know that a logo is an expression that people associate with a product that kind of has a heart appeal sometimes. So when they see it, not only did they think of the company, but they think of whatever it is that the company sells. And so I want to demonstrate a couple ways this morning that I'm, that I'm, uh, how this logo has an effect on it. So if my ESOL man, Nate, would come up here. Um, I'm going to try to draw a logo, and uh, you try to guess what it is. My drawing may hamper that, but... Uh... Yeah, Nike. Okay, that's good. It's, uh, it's the Nike Swoosh, and uh, I think that's one of the most well-known logos worldwide. And I don't know if you know this, back in Jesus' day, in Greek, the, the word Nike meant victory or to win. And so we associate this symbol with winners. And people see that and they think, man, maybe I'd be the man if I had that shirt on with that logo. So they'll pay extra bucks for a shirt that, that has that swish on it uh, because it's probably one of the most compelling logos of our day. Now I want to give you a second one. Back neat, I can just rip that off. And uh, here's the, the second one. McDonald's, all right. Yeah. And the McDonald's logo, uh, you know, the home of, of Ronald McDonald, the home of the, the uh, Happy Meal. Little kids see that symbol and their hearts start to beat a little faster. And they think, man, if I just had one of those Happy Meals, I would be happy. And, of course, the only person who's really happy is with those billions that are sold is Ronald McDonald. But uh, in some respects, this is a sign, and I'm going to kind of weigh something into it, of abundance, because you can get it cheap, you can get it fast, you can go through the drive through lane and pick it up. In fact, if your kids are hungry today, I would bet that many of you parents could go out to your van and you could find enough french fries to fill a pack between the seats and, and everything like that. So, um, so that's... Uh, a recognizable logo. Here's another logo that uh, some people say a piece on. You're right. It, when you put the circle around, it's the Mercedes. And uh, thank you, Nate, for for that. Uh, I saw an ad for for Mercedes, and here's how it went. Whoever said money can't buy happiness? never got behind the wheel of a Mercedes-Benz S-Class. Sorry, old yeller, it looks like man has a new best friend. Meet the sedan that's second to none. <laughs> and so uh, the Mercedes S-Class Benz. Now, uh, I saw another ad that was kind of interesting for them. It said, you can't buy happiness, but now you can lease it. <laughs> so, uh, Mercedes. Well, there you have it, a world of logos that we live in, and the smartest people are staying up late at night to try to figure out some logo that will somehow capture our imagination. I know even at Water's Edge, we, we have struggled to find some logo that whenever you saw it, it would bring the recognition that this is what Water's Edge is and what it stands for. Sometimes we see a logo and we want to be associated with whatever that represents, uh, we think that, you know, what's reflected in that, what want, I'd like that to be an expression of my life in some respect. So that brings us today to a very important question, because 2000, for 2,000 years, the simplest expression of the Christian faith has been a cross. Two pieces of wood put together. 
It's the clearest, most remembered, and probably most widely recognized symbol of what the Christian faith stands for. And it's interesting because our corporate logo is a symbol of death. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this logo, you've built your life on it. And of course, the question that just screams out is, of all the things in the world that we could use to identify ourselves, why would we pick a cross? If we're trying to create a movement that somehow is going to attract men and women worldwide, why will we choose an instrument of execution? I mean, who would choose something like that? Nobody chooses a logo like that today. I mean, could you imagine California Edison having as their logo an electric chair and their motto is, turn the power on, or something like that? You know, we, we forget, I think, the shock. We forget what is really understood when we see this corporate logo, this symbol, the cross. This is not the sign of a winner. It's the sign of death. It isn't the sign of abundance. It's really the sign of ultimate loss. It's not the sign of status. It is really the sign of humiliation. And I think one of the most profound mysteries of the Christian faith is that the God of the universe who holds all power and holds all wealth would somehow choose as the essential expression of his heart and his love and his character a cross. Now, whether or not you've come to the cross personally, whether or not it expresses your life personally, I want us to all be very clear before we come to the table today about the meaning of this cross and what it meant that Jesus suffered. I want you to understand the power of the cross and the difference it can make in your life and also in our world today. And I also want you to understand what it means for us corporately to be a people of the cross. What is it that Jesus invites his followers to do? You know, in the ancient world, the Romans had a lot of, way of ways of executing people. And they, by the way, did a lot. They would burn people. They would stone them, and in those days, people didn't get stoned like they do today. Uh, they would build a pit and drop boulders right down on and crush them. They knew how to execute people swiftly. They would take a sword and just swish a, a person's head off, and they often did that. They sometimes would execute people privately. And in fact, Socrates is an example of this. Uh, they would give a poison, a hemlock, and they would drink that, and they could. there was some kind of... Uh, quiet de uh, death that took place. Uh, I had a philosophy teacher in college who said that when, when uh, Socrates drank his poison, he said, a good hemlock, but not a great hemlock. Uh, but, uh, but it was more of a dignified private uh, ceremony uh, that you could do. So why crucifixion? Crucifixion is a very cumbersome deal. It requires more people. In fact, in the Roman government, they would require four soldiers and a centurion to oversee them. It took hours, sometimes days, because death was, uh, crucifixion was death by suffocation, and it could go on and on for days. It obviously was more time-consuming. I would think it would have been more expensive for the Roman government. So why would they use crucifixion? And they, they primarily used it for two reasons. Number one, they wanted to maximize the pain and the agony of the condemned person and kind of draw it out. But, but the primary reason that they used crucifixion was that there were people who were rebellious against the Roman government. And they wanted to give an example to others that they would not bring insurrection against the government. 
And so by making it a public display, that's how it happened. In fact, soldiers would take the condemned man and they would take a circulous route through the town as a way of gathering people to come along. And they would make it a very big public deal. And the idea was to taunt and humiliate the person who was being crucified. It almost became like a sporting event in our day, Seattle against Denver. And uh, in fact, I, I didn't say anything about this. I don't know if he's still in the room, but you know, Dave was so big on Denver. Uh, oh, there he is right there. Uh, but, uh, but because the Romans were trying to occupy hostile territory of Israel, and anybody who would rebel wanting to gain their freedom or independence, they wanted to discourage that. And so in order to avoid future insurrections, they would crucify somebody. Now, listen, Roman law forbade you to crucify a Roman citizen. It was only reserved for foreigners and slaves. In fact, that's why the Apostle Paul, by the way, he, he could appeal to Rome, <laughs> even though he was a Jew, because he was a Roman citizen. And so it was a physical, painful death. And, and I think I could spend a lot of time talking about the, the physicalness, but we've all seen, I think, most of us, the passion of, of, of the Christ. We understand the physical agony of crucifixion. But I want to just talk about something that, that was even greater. As Jesus was on the cross and he looked down at the soldiers and the mobs who were crucifying him and taunting him, he prayed, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. And here's the interesting thing, that the Gospels say very little, almost nothing, about Jesus' physical death on the cross. In the Gospel of Mark, here's all it says, and they crucified him. They say little about that physical experience of the cross, because Jesus' deepest suffering, his most significant suffering, was really unique to what any of us would ever suffer. And here's the difference between what Jesus went through and what anybody else would go through. He was experiencing a form of spiritual suffering. And, that, and you and I can only dimly imagine that. It, it, it made physical suffering almost inconsequential. And I want you this morning to try the best as you can to reflect on this. The Bible says that on the cross, he who knew no sin, he'd never experienced guilt, he never had a moment's regret, he didn't have any shame, only pure innocence throughout his whole life. And it says, he who knew no sin became sin for our sake. Now think about that for a moment. Think about the darkest thing that you've ever done. You have something I do too. It would cause you the most intense pain and humiliation if I were to flash up on a screen that moment for you in front of all of us. Maybe you betrayed a marital vow. Maybe you went through an abortion. Maybe it was an act of deceit that caused you to lose a job or a friendship. Maybe it was a habit or a pattern that you're just so ashamed of and you wouldn't want anybody to know about it. Your whole life is just about keeping that secret. And I don't know what it is for you, but I know that you've got something. I do too. Remember that sense of pain that you had when you just said, I'd give anything to take it back? Now imagine experiencing the weight of that sin and countless other sins that you've committed, some of which your conscience right now has so dulled that you don't even remember them. Add to that not just the guilt of your sin, but the guilt and the pain and the shame and the regret 
and the destructiveness to the soul of every sin that's been committed by every fallen human being who's ever lived, every act of physical abuse, every murder from the beginning of Cain, from Cain and Abel right on down to today and into the future, every seduction, every betrayal, every deception, every genocide. Think about the Holocaust. Think about the horror of that. Every mean and spiteful word, every greedy business deal, every shabby lie. Imagine feeling the horror and the despair of all that sin in just one heart. Imagine experiencing the judgment and anger of a holy, righteous God toward all that sin, and all of that would be directed at you. And think about this. Jesus, his whole life long, had never experienced anything but perfect intimacy with God the Father. It was a joy-filled, delightful, servant-filled love. And he had a community with the, with the Father for all eternity. And Jesus, in that single moment, knew what it was like to be unloved by the Father. In fact, on the cross, the scriptures say that Jesus cried out these words in Matthew twenty-seven, forty-six: My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you think it would mean to be fully forsaken by God? And this is something that none of us will ever know. Some of you know a little bit about being estranged from God, maybe distant from God, feeling like somehow God's hand of favor isn't on your life. But even for people who shake their fist at God, they still experience his gifts every day. He wakes them up every morning. He gives them breath. On the cross, what happened is that Jesus experienced something that only you and I can dimly imagine. And that was the horror of being forsaken by God. Complete spiritual darkness, spiritual aloneness, forsakenness, abandonedness, hopelessness. And that's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, my soul is in anguish. And he says that this sorrow was so strong that it almost, he says it's sorrowful to the point of death. His physical suffering was nothing compared to this. He was mistreated by the authorities. He was mocked by the crowds. He was abandoned and deserted and betrayed by his best friends. But his real suffering was a spiritual suffering that you and I can hardly imagine. The writer of Galatians says this. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. In other words, he experienced a supernatural suffering and a guilt that you and I will never have to. And then we get the healing and the forgiveness that comes that we shouldn't have earned. Now, this leads to a second aspect of the cross I want you to think about, and that's the power of the cross. Because it was very apparent to the onlookers who were there that day that there was something powerful that was going on here spiritually. In fact, in Matthew 27, we're told that as Jesus hung on the cross, the land became dark kind of expressing the spiritual darkness, I think, that was going on. And it says the earth shook. There was earthquakes. We're told that when he died, the veil of the temple was ripped in two that separates the Holy of Holies from the other part of the temple. See, they used to have a high priest, and he would only go into the Holy of Holies once a year on behalf of the people, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and that was where the people envisioned that God dwelt. And so all of a sudden... This, this curtain splits, and a centurion standing at the foot of the cross says, Truly, this is the Son of God. 
It's an act of extraordinary spiritual power. And I just want us to understand the power that's released from the cross. First of all is the power of forgiveness. Because of Jesus on the cross, you and I, who are collectively guilty as a human race, our guilt on the cross, our sin on the cross with Jesus, the Bible said, the blood, this is in 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us and purifies us from all sin. And this means whatever you've done, you can be totally forgiven. I remember speaking to an university chapter at a university of Wisconsin one year, and, and afterwards this girl came up to me and she says, do you think that God can forgive me? And I said, the issue is not can God forgive you. The point of the matter is he already has. That's the power of the cross. Now, do you want what he died to forgive you? That he wants to give you that forgiveness? It's the power of access to the cross. It's the power of access to God. You know, when that curtain ripped, it's like God is saying, you know what? I just want you to have full access to me. You come to me anytime you want. There's nothing that, that, you know, my presence is available anytime, and we can't take that for granted. We live in a world where people want to have access to powerful people. I remember when our kids were little, we went to Disneyland for the first time, and you know when you go through that archway, and then the characters are right there to the right? There's Mickey Mouse and Snow White and Little Mermaid, and my kids are jumping up and down. They're so excited. They just want to go over and touch them, you know. To them, that's power, you know. Kathy and I went to the Grove one time, and there was Mario Lopez, and she got all excited and started jumping up and down, and she just wanted to run over, but, uh, but no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We don't, we don't have access to, to, to that usually famous people very much. But I think that uh, we live under the sad truth that we're sinful and that God is holy and that we're cut off from God. And on the cross, Jesus says, that veil was ripped in two so that you can approach my throne with with boldness. If you need wisdom, if you need guidance, if you're discouraged and you need comfort, if you're lonely and you need a friend, God says, you just come to me anytime. That's the power of the cross. It's also the power of reconciliation. People are not only reconciled to God, but they're reconciled to one another. In Jesus' day, the biggest enemies were the Gentiles and the Jewish people. And, the, and they, they wouldn't eat together. They wouldn't be together. And Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, said that when Christ died on the cross, in his body he made the two one, and he tore down what Paul describes as the dividing wall of hostility that had separated Jewish people from Gentile people. It was torn down and these bitter enemies became brothers and sisters. And by the way, that's a matter of historical fact because when you look at the church, that's exactly what happened in the early church. I read Bonhoeffer one time and he said that Christians are like porcupines in a snowstorm. They need each other to stay warm, but if they get too close to one another, they prick each other with their quills. So he said, God, Jesus does not just stand between us and God to reconcile us to God. He stands between us And he takes upon himself the quills that we would inflict on one another in order for us to get closer and to be reconciled. I love that imagery. It still happens today, black and white, male and female, estranged people, parents and children, husbands and wives. And when they discover that the ground at the cross is at level level ground, 
that there's actually only one kind of people. That's people who are created in God's image, who have fallen and are redeemed by the cross of Christ. Then people get reconciled. What makes that happen? It's the power of the cross. And there's victory over evil. In fact, Paul says in in, uh, the letter to the Colossians in chapter 2, he says, He disarmed spiritual powers and authorities opposed to God, and he made a public spectacle of them. I think that's really interesting. They were trying to make a public spectacle of Jesus, shaming and humiliating him. But the Bible says when he died on the cross, he made the ultimate triumph and the self-sacrificing love of God and it was manifest. And he was saying, you know, Fool, the trick's on you. Sin and guilt are ultimately defeated at the cross. And that's the power of victory over sin. And so part of what that means, my brothers and sisters, this morning is if you don't, is you don't have to be defeated by sin. You can begin to change. You can experience a transformation, even living in a fallen world. And you don't have to be trapped or struck or stuck, sorry, because it's the power of the cross. And so that's why for 2,000 years, the symbol of Christian faith is not a candle and it's not a star, but it's a cross. And that's why the Apostle Paul says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. I mean, we think of it as being humiliation and death. But what we're after is victory and abundance and status. But Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And the main thing I want you to get this morning is is that you would believe that Jesus' main concern is that you and I become people of the cross. And his concern is not that we visibly display it, because you can go to any jewelry store and get one. His primary concern is that we are self-giving, self-sacrificial, and that we love in a way that is expressed as Christ loved on the cross. That we publicly display his life in the boardroom, and in our living rooms, and in this room, And in every room, that we are men and women of the cross. Jesus said some of the most sobering words, I think, that were recorded in the book of Luke. He said, if anyone would follow me, they must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And so now today, I just ask, have you chosen to become a person of the cross? Have you told God privately in your heart, every day when I get up, I'll take up my cross? I'll be a follower of Jesus. And whatever is in my life that's displeasing or dishonoring, I want to crucify it. I don't know what needs to be crucified in your life, but everybody's got something. It might be lust. It might be pride. It might be deception. It might be resentment. It might be greed. But maybe you'd say today, all right, God, whatever it takes, however much it hurts, kill it. Destroy what it is inside of me that doesn't please you and resurrect something that might be the kind of person that you designed me to be. And I wonder if it will be said about us as a church that we are a people of the cross. You know, there's a lot of different roads we can go down. We can accumulate a lot of things, a lot of symbols that, that would maybe make us winners in the world's eyes. Or we could have the courage and the character to say, I will seek to live my life in a self-sacrificing and a self-giving love 
And I'll mess up sometimes, but tomorrow I'll get back up again and take my cross. And the next day I'll pick my cross back up again. And as best I can, with God helping me, I will live as a man or a woman of the cross. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's stand for prayer and then to worship. And just quietly as you're standing there, would you invite the Holy Spirit to just maybe enter into the the closets and the basements and the attics of your life right now and just say, God, what is it that, that needs to be killed in my life? What needs to be crucified? And then would you consider, because the Christian life has lived in 24-hour segments, if any man would come after me, let him take up his cross daily. And so what is it today that you need to crucify so that Christ can have his way.